Hello and welcome back to Control Alt Delete. My guest today is Vicky Spratt, the author of Tenants, the people on the front line of Britain's housing emergency and award-winning journalist whose work regularly shapes public policy. She's also currently the iPapers housing correspondent and she is such an important voice. Her 2016 campaign, Make Renting Fair, got letting fees in England and Wales banned and she's spoken at many political conferences on BBC News, Newsnight, Women's Hour... Radio 4 and tons more. Her work is so important and this episode and her book is really galvanizing, inspiring and empowering and it will really make you pay attention to what's going on at the moment in terms of the housing crisis in the UK and beyond. Vicky's got a really great way of making people wake up and feel engaged when it comes to these issues that can feel pretty overwhelming sometimes. I hope you enjoyed this episode and I really recommend checking out her book Tenants. I found it really eye-opening. I learned a lot and it's incredibly gripping in the way it's been written. So if you enjoyed this episode, please consider going and leaving a review somewhere or sharing with a friend or both. Thank you so much for listening. So I'm so excited today. I've got Vicky Spratt on the podcast. I feel like this was always going to happen, having a chat about her wonderful book that's just come out. And I was lucky enough to work with Vicky at the debrief. Our paths crossed then. And even back then in like 2014, I think it was, and onwards, you were winning campaigns for your amazing journalism. And I was the one that literally like wrote the tweet to post them. (laughs) And you were doing so much amazing work about the pill. I remember that completely blew my mind because I was going insane at the time on the pill and you were just cracking open conversations and then the make renting fair campaign happened and now this book and I know I've missed out loads of stuff in between could we start there about how you know those campaigns were huge and and all the work that went into those at the time yeah well before we do start there what I would say is I've always loved working alongside you and writing the tweet is a really important part of the process, Emma, because journalism doesn't reach an audience unless we have really, really brilliant people helping us to get the message across. So that's a really, really important part and everything, and including this book, um, everything I've ever done, it has been a huge, huge piece of teamwork. And um, it might have my name on the cover or those campaigns might end up with my name on the byline, but it's definitely not just my work. Um, But I suppose over the years, it has got to a point now where I look look back over what is now nearly a decade. And it, it has always been really important to me to take something that people are talking about, explore it, help people understand why something is going on. And I think Make Renting Fair was a really good example of that. So that campaign for anyone who doesn't know was to get letting fees banned, the fees that you used to have to pay to estate agents when you moved house. And they were extortionate. And I had just paid like thousands of pounds in fees and a deposit and was really, really, really pissed off about it. And as journalists do, they started researching the hell out of it because when I don't like something, I'm like, okay, I need to understand why this is the way that it is. This feels really unfair. What's going on? Found out that they were banned in Scotland spoke to my editor or our editor at the time and publisher and was like, okay, we've got to get this banned. I think we could do a big editorial campaign. But I think that's journalism at its best when you can take something people are talking about in their WhatsApp groups or at the pub, whether that's having to pay 
estate agents huge amounts of money or the fact that you're convinced that the contraceptive pill is making you anxious and depressed, but you're not sure why, exploring it, doing a deep dive and then breaking it down for people that's so that they can understand it. And I think I always try and remember that that's what the job is, because if you put that at the center of everything you do, you are always making a meaningful contribution. For sure. And I mean, to anyone listening who is genuinely really inspired to get into that line of work, I kind of don't want to underestimate how much tenacity and drive and motivation you do have to have. I mean, not to kind of try to unpick your personality like it's a quiz or anything, but like, do you find that you do need to be really on it, like dog with a bone, you know, because I think some people might get started and then they might give up if it's hard. There's a lot that goes into it, a lot of research and a lot of meetings actually in the background before any of those campaigns or investigations can happen. Like a lot of the job is meeting people and finding out um, what the information is that you need to know. And that does require a lot of, we use the word tenacity, I guess it is that, and also confidence like in this day and age something I really really notice I'm going to sound I'm making myself sound really old but I notice that a lot of people not just professionally but person in my personal life too like really don't like picking up the phone but if you're going to do investigations or campaigns that you've really got to call people and get them to meet up with you and sometimes people will have stories to tell or information to pass over that they don't necessarily feel confident with and it's about building relationships too and making people feel comfortable and building trust and getting to a point where they will share that information with you or let you in to their life and share their story I look back on when I was 24 23 24 and starting out and I I was so fearless I'm not sure that I'm quite it's it's getting older is is such an interesting thing because I still have the same energy and passion for the job and I still believe in the power of journalism. But I think there was something about me at 23 or 24, I really, really just went for it. And I was very bold and I was knocking on doors to get things done that I look back and I'm just like, where did you get that confidence from? But I think on on the big issues that I've worked on, it was a real sense of of injustice. I think particularly with that with housing and with with contraception. And I really still bang that drum. And and of course some of the other things I report on now to do with cost of living and abortion as well is like a big, big part of my my beat these days. It really is just a sense of this is this is really wrong. So something has to has to be done. And if you're lucky enough to have a platform or to build a platform and be given a platform in a national newspaper, which is a privilege, an incredible privilege that I don't take lightly, I suppose what, what weighs on me every day is like, okay, so how do I actually want to use this platform? But it's not, um, it's not, it's not a glam job is what I would say. It's, it's amazing and it's so interesting and I absolutely love it. But my days are emailing and calling and chasing and making things happen. And sometimes, you know, going to meet people in obscure places to find out if they have a story so it's not yeah it's not glam and it's not always easy and it is hard work and particularly at a national newspaper the hours can be grueling and my colleagues work so so hard to get that paper delivered to people um and in digital media the the same is true but I think particularly making a paper or working in tv news which I've also done like it's it can be quite antisocial hours but I know journalists don't always get the best the best rap these days, sometimes rightly, um, but, but there are teams of really, really dedicated people 
the names of, of whom you'll never hear working through the night to get newspapers and TV news to you. And I think they are all brilliant journalists and they're so dedicated. And the majority of them don't do it for the glory. Um, they do it because they genuinely believe in the power of informing people. And um, mm-hmm. I think that is one of the things about journalism that I will always, always um, enjoy because being able to get information across to people, particularly in the last few years, right, when we've lived through a huge public health crisis that has had serious social and economic implications. And I think that if you were a journalist in that period, you really felt a sense of duty almost to to break things down. And in my own small way, with with housing policy particularly, but also with what was going on in abortion, because I suppose those were the main two things I've been writing about, explaining explaining policy changes to people in a way they can understand felt like a meaningful contribution and it's not always easy and i think our job is to read all of these long documents that other people aren't reading and then synthesize them and make sure they can understand what's going on but also to hold the government to account when they're doing things they shouldn't be um but yeah it's not always glam but it's just the most rewarding job and I in some ways funnily enough the thing I like about it the least is the is the public facing element um where once we would have just been a name in, on a piece of paper it's now the whole 360 job and I think that's really good in so many ways it's it, it's made it seem like it's about individual journalists telling stories which of course it is up to a point but like I said earlier you know we really do work on teams and it takes it takes a village to make a paper or, or a show like Newsnight or a podcast. And um, that's one of the, the most brilliant things about it too, is all these really dedicated people working together because they really believe in the importance of information. Yeah. Well, that's a really incredible insight. I think people wouldn't necessarily know all of that behind the scenes. And, you know, it's funny because a lot of protagonists in like Netflix dramas at the moment are like, you know, the, the journalist who's just sitting around in the office chatting. And it's like, mm, <laughs> I don't think that is um, what happens inside those offices. For we do a bit. We do a bit. Of <laughs> but I, yeah. I did. I did laugh when I was watching the Anna Delvey series yeah. um, because actually I felt I felt seen and I felt exposed because when she won't let the story go. I think I think we are like that. And I think we do, even sometimes if an editor's like, this isn't really working out, you should let that go. In the background, you're like, no, I'm going to make it happen. Um, so I really, when I was watching watching that, I was like, what was the character's name? Vivian? Vivian Sloan? Yes, I think yeah. so. And I did like that she was wearing kind of comfortable clothes and looked a little bit bedraggled. I was like, that's, yeah, that's realistic. That's the only thing that's realistic. Yeah, constantly, <laughs> constantly like getting caught in the rain or like, I, I have actually, I do remember once I was out on a story with my laptop in the middle of nowhere, like almost wait, like trying to get an Uber in a field, but also filing copy on a laptop in the rain. So when I was watching her like running around pregnant, still going to Rikers, trying to get the story, although obviously that was a fictionalized account of what actually happened. I was like, gosh, yeah, we are all, we are all a bit like that. <laughs> But it makes sense that those little little spikes of excitement, or not excitement, but progress and, and feeling like you're getting somewhere. And after all of that, it's like the same with sort of full on activism. It must be that that is what keeps you going at the end of the day. I can't imagine that feeling of like, I've cracked something. This is going to carry us forward. Yeah. And it is, it, is, it is an amazing feeling when you when you feel like you've 
uncovered something that needed to be uncovered um that, that is you know for for the public benefit however big or small that is it is that's the job yeah and i know that one of your major gripes is sort of the journalists writing for other journalists or almost like wanting them to see what they're doing rather than it literally being for the public domain so i just I want to shout that out cuz i think that's really true and important so let's talk about tenants because it's out now it's been a labor of love i know in the introduction you say literally on the first line that you've been working across this for five years this is five years worth of research how amazing and how robust to be reading a book that has that amount in it you should be so proud of this book um but i don't really know where to start because i've got so much to ask about it I guess we should start maybe with the fact that home was not a safe place for everyone, in particular during the pandemic. It feels like to write a book about housing would have been important five years ago, would have been important a few years ago, feels so important now. Like the home for so many of us, well, for all of us, feels like the most important thing. I mean, okay, that's maybe a bit of a generalization, but like it's become so much more weighted, would you say? Yeah, I think I think that's really accurate. And thank you so much for your kind words about it. Um it is, yeah, it has it's been a real a real long haul, this book. I, I think for, for for only good reasons in the end. Um but what really struck me, home has always been the center of everything, right? Like if you don't have a stable and secure home, very little else in your life can can function. Um, so that that's really where tenants came from in the beginning was to look at the the problem we've got with housing in this country and the fact that so many people don't have a stable and affordable home. But then coronavirus came along, and you know, in the space of a couple of weeks, things moved very very fast, and home took on a new significance because it became our best defense against the virus, like a frontline defense in a public health crisis. It was literally the only way to keep people safe was to tell them to stay at home. But with that, you know, for, for lots of people, that meant staying at home in a nice house or flat. Like that was a situation I was lucky enough to be in and taking, you know, more, having more of their life take place at home. And of course there were challenges there, not least if you were living alone, um, which I was, um, but but you you understood how important your home could be and how it could become the center of everything. But for so many people, millions of people living in privately rented accommodation, hundreds of thousands of people living in temporary accommodation, it was not a safe place to be. If you were living in an overcrowded house share or house in multiple occupation, whether that was legal or illegal, for anyone who doesn't know, those are houses where the rooms are all divided up and lots of people live in them and they're not always licensed, which they're supposed to be. And they can be really, really horrific places to be. If you didn't have a garden, if you were a mum with kids living in temporary accommodation in a converted office block with no outdoor space and tiny rooms, I've spoken to those people too, you know, home where you were compelled to stay by law was not somewhere you would want to be or felt safe. And so I think, what I will call the housing crisis, because that's how we all understand it, really ramped up in the pandemic. Because if you're confining people to their homes and and, and also people are losing their jobs or, or losing their work and potentially can't afford their homes, suddenly all of the issues we had, all of the fault lines that existed before the pandemic were kind of cracked wide open. And I think it made 
the book take on a new significance because actually everything I'd been reporting on for several years was now even more urgent than it had ever been because of the pandemic. It's fascinating and and it really opens your eyes, doesn't it? Because like you say, we all had a different experience of the same thing and everyone was like, we're in the same boat. And it's like, no, we're not. That experience would have been different for everyone. I mean, in terms of the fact that the cities was were and have been always so sort of sought after and that's when you get the right move link which is like literally a cupboard under the stairs for like a million pounds has that changed since the pandemic and this is talking more generally now not people in kind of complete dire straits but have you noticed like a shift in the fact that that's not even a place where people want to gather as much now yeah there's been a real shift and i think that we still i mean as you and i speak right now in may 2022 we're still in the pandemic and I don't think we could be complacent about that so I'm not going to talk as though it's over because we, we don't know what will happen I mean touch wood it looks like we are on the way out and, and the vaccine has, has really really helped us but anything's possible and I think that's really what COVID showed us actually is how how quickly things can change and how vulnerable humans are despite the fact that we all think we're invincible and we've all got used to fixing absolutely everything with the click of a button and having everything instantly actually we're still vulnerable sacks of flesh on a rock in the middle of space and things like viruses can really affect us um but i think i think actually and to get very existential for a moment and and you know frame it like that i think i think a lot of people reassess their lives um during the pandemic and certainly what i've seen in reporting and what we've seen in the data and also in house prices is People did leave cities um, through necessity and also through choice. I think a lot of people were like, why am I living like this? I want more space. Or they moved home or they moved somewhere cheaper. So actually people have have left the big cities and moved to smaller cities or moved to places that are by the sea that are in commuting distance of cities. So for a London example, consider London and then the Kent coast like Margate, Deal, um, Ramsgate, all of those like brilliant seaside towns along along that coast. But then in the West Country, consider Bristol and people being like, oh, I don't know if I want to live in Bristol anymore and moving out to places like Western Supermare. Now, what that's done <laughs> is um, push up the price of renting and, a ha- and housing in the areas that people have migrated to. So we're now seeing house prices rise in places that were once more affordable And I think that is creating a whole new set of issues. Um, What that will look like in the future, who knows? And and, and by the way, I frame that like not not to throw shade at anyone who has relocated. That's a very, very reasonable thing to want to do. But because of the way our housing market works, when there's increased demand in an area, prices go up. And that obviously impacts people who were living there because it was more affordable. So I think it's created new pressure points. And house prices have hit historic highs in the pandemic and, and rents rents are on the way too. So I, I think we have to be really, really thoughtful about, about what that's going to do to communities. And, um, you know, the other weekend, actually, I was in Margate with some friends and a classic journalist, always, always kind of mm-hmm. trying to find out what's going on. And I was just chatting to people as we were going, going around Margate and um, having lunch. And they were saying rents are getting so expensive. My landlord wants to put my rent up. I can't afford it. And that will be because some people moved out of London because they wanted to be by the sea. I don't begrudge anyone wanting to live by the sea. I, of course, would love to 
to do the same, to do that journey and, and live and live there and commute back into London. But because of the, the way the housing market is regulated or rather unregulated, when people make those journeys, it, it does it does put financial pressure on other people. And I think mm. that's one of the main stories of, of housing and this particular phase of the pandemic that we're in right now. Even with the make renting fair, like you, th- you think, oh, bloody landlords like back in the student days where like a landlord would just come into your house unannounced like oh that was a weird one for me also illegal they can't do that correct me if I'm wrong but what I got from the book is like this isn't actually about pointing the finger at individual landlords or individual necessarily even people it's like this is such a bigger problem and quite an overwhelming problem very overwhelming that it's it's a system it's you're trying to like throw shade at the actual issue at large I have thought about this a lot from several different angles. And I think when there is injustice of any kind, it's very tempting to single out individuals who appear to be the perpetrators of that injustice. And sometimes there are individuals and that that is absolutely the right thing to do is to find them and single them out. Often with big systemic problems like housing inequality, I think if you're focusing on a particular group like landlords or investors, you're sort of directing your attention in the wrong direction. I think landlords and investors and homeowners to up to a point make very convenient enemies here, but really they're not doing anything illegal whether you, the morality of it is, is kind of subjective. Like they're allowed to invest in property. They're allowed to rent it out. They're allowed to charge people whatever they want. That's completely legitimate in the system that we all exist mm-hmm. in. And what I think has happened is that directing anger at them and all of these memes that I see about landlords, and I get it and they're funny and landlords can be awful, but they're, they're kind of us putting our energy in the wrong wrong places and directing anger and frustration in the wrong places really it's the state's job to ensure that something as basic as housing can function and the state has not done that job i think that's something i was really really keen to draw out in the book and i've tried to draw it out the whole way through this is this is the direct the crisis that we're in unaffordable unstable and often unsafe housing is the direct consequence of policy failures that have happened for political reasons, because of political ideology, because certain politicians didn't believe in rent control, didn't believe in regulation, wanted a free market, didn't like social housing. And so if we all fight amongst ourselves, and I see this particularly with the bank of mom and dad stuff, I think it's so interesting. You know, it's like, oh, bank of mom and dad, evil, evil, so many people accessing the bank of mom and dad. It's kind of become us versus them, even within the younger generations. That's wrong too, because lots of people who are using the bank of mum and dad, and I know people who have done this, their parents taking money out of their pensions to help them buy a house. Their parents are taking money out of their houses to help them buy a house. Their par- I know people whose parents have taken out loans so that their kids can have deposits. That's gonna have a knock-on effect in the future because they're going to need money when they're old and they need care. And who knows what state our economy is going to be in by that point if the current status quo continues. You know, it's not um, 
it's not all as straightforward as people want to make it out to be. And I think that it's really important to remember who ultimately the buck stops with. And the buck stops with our elected representatives and it stops with government. And there are several things that could have been done to mitigate the problem of unaffordable, unsafe and unstable housing over the last 20, 30 years. And they were not done against the advice of experts. And I think that um, targeting all of the frustration at landlords will only get you so far because they have no power, really. They're just they've been told, hey, make hay while the sun shines. And they are. And who blame them? You know, work doesn't pay enough. If you had the money and you thought you could make money out of property, I guess you would. So whether you think what they're doing is right or wrong, that's one thing. But really, ultimately, the people who have the power to change things, the politicians and the people who allowed the, the housing crisis to get so bad all sit at Westminster. Thank you for that, because you really are so knowledgeable on it. And I don't and I don't think people do know the whole the whole picture. And it is easy to sit at a dinner party and be like, it, it's this and it's that. And so many nuts and bolts go into it. And I found it really interesting as well, like your story of your family, because you were coming at it from quite a personal angle as well. The fact that council housing and having that help actually impacted you and your family. So you have a story there that actually makes us all so much more real as well from in the book. Well, it was, I, I thought a lot about the extent to which I wanted to talk about my own life. Um, because I, as a journalist these days, I earn good money. Um, I'm sitting in a flat right now that I do own, albeit, uh, with a government affordability scheme and also with my ex-partner though I won't say too much about that because that's also his story and he has the right to privacy so my my own situation is not uncomplex but these days I'm very comfortable and I didn't want to get into all of the crap I had to put up with with renting because I think we we know that story mm-hmm. you know we know we know what that's like but it what I did settle on was that my own family's origin story and the extent to which council housing was a huge, huge leg up and stepping stone for my mum's parents and how they drilled that into me as a young person um, felt like it felt like a part of my own housing journey that I was up for sharing because these days there isn't enough council housing. So in the book, I tell the story of how my mum's parents were given their first council flat in South London and why they were given it um, because they were living in overcrowded accommodation with my nan- with my great grandparents and they needed a home and they needed somewhere to get going with in life and private renting was really expensive and lots of landlords wouldn't accept them because they didn't earn very much and my nan was pregnant so they were living with her parents she's one of nine I'm not sure exactly how many of her siblings at the time were living in the house this is in the 50s, right? So it's not that long ago, which I think is, it sounds Victorian, but like we're talking about the 1950s. It's really important to like locate that. And the council, Croydon Council, gave them a flat because they were living in an overcrowded flat. At the time, my nan's dad um, had TB, obviously very, very infectious disease. You couldn't have a newborn baby around tuberculosis. So they gave them a brand new maisonette in South Norwood. And the reason I wanted to tell that story in particular, and I'm so grateful 
to my nan for letting me share it. And that wasn't easy for her, by the way, because I think there's still to this day a huge stigma about the conditions that they were living in and the conditions that people still live in today. And there's a huge stigma about social housing, council housing, and it's it's really it's really wrong. And that, again, is a direct consequence of a lot of uh, work by politicians in recent years to make us think that there's some shame in living in social housing and there's not. But a family like mine now, you know, infectious diseases are no, are no longer a thing of the past. We all just encountered one. Like that, that is, that is the extent to which there is a direct parallel here with yeah. the pandemic and, and what we were seeing in the 20th century with cholera, with tuberculosis, you know, there, there was also a flu pandemic in the 20th century. So history loves to repeat itself and progress isn't linear. And I think COVID probably came along as a reminder of that, like, um, or, or at least it's become a reminder of mm. that. I found it really powerful that you did include that because I know that this is not a book about you, but you painted the picture so well. And I think that's what the book is about. Thank you. I really appreciate that. And yeah, it was really important for me to do that because I, I think, you know, my granddad in particular was like, everything we have is because we got given a council flat. You have to work really hard. You have to go to uni. You have to do all this stuff. But he was like, everything we have is because of that flat. Don't ever take the welfare state for granted. Don't take the NHS for granted. Don't take anything for granted. And he really, really, really drilled that into me. And I think I now in my work, I meet young families in situations similar to the one that they would have been in, living in overcrowded homes, unable to afford to rent, unable to afford to buy. And the reality is there isn't enough social housing for them. So they're stuck in really, 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 really bad crap homes. Um, And once upon a time, politicians thought it was so important that everyone had a house that we built lots and lots of council houses and gave them to people like my family. Um, and didn't take them away, let them have them for as long as they needed them. And if that was forever, that was forever. And I think, you know, that was a century ago, just under. So we really need to remember how recent that was and the story of housing and how after the the wars in the 20th century, politicians really made housing a focus is a really important one because we kind of made all of these leaps and strides in building affordable housing Um and, and, and giving it to the people who needed it. And then we systematically unraveled the welfare mm-hmm. state in the 80s, 90s, 2010s. And I, and I think I wanted to share my family's story because I think it, it, it does help to, to understand that policy. One of my concerns about the housing crisis and the way that it's often spoken about and reported on is that it becomes really abstract. We can talk about the specific policies and bits of legislation, but if you don't explain what that actually means for people, I think it gets lost. That's why I wanted to share that that story. But I was very I was very wary of putting any of anything personal in this book because I didn't I didn't want it to detract from the reporting and other people's stories. But then the conclusion I reached, I suppose, as a writer was actually you know I am here and I exist and obviously I've written this book for a reason because of how important housing has been to my family so it would almost be disingenuous not to mention that but it was a fine you know less journalistically and more creatively that was that was a fine line to tread because what I really really wouldn't want anyone to take away from this book is that it's about it's only about my story but hopefully that 
story of my grandparents and my there's a bit more about my life not too much it kind of sits alongside everyone else who shared their stories with me and in instead serves as a reminder of how universal this issue is absolutely I didn't want to circle in too much on on you but I just wanted to point out it's a really powerful storytelling and I really love that section um but on the whole obviously you're talking about a huge crisis the, the hidden homelessness the night shelters for people that are being evicted the fact that the mental health crisis as well that goes alongside this you interview people that you've really kind of sat down with and got to know so so well and you really feel their pain because this is like you say a huge health crisis as well as anything else I don't want to try and turn this into like a happy ending thing but there is like a sort of quiet optimism as well I felt whilst reading your book like you touch on good people good eggs who you know organizations but unions and charities and just good people that you meet along the way I mean this is like the big question isn't it but do you feel that sort of quiet optimism and do you hope that people get that from the book and that they take steps to help in some way? This is something I've thought about a lot personally and professionally. In life, when there are things that are really, really terrible, anger, sadness, frustration only gets you so far. It really does. Um, And often that's a very important reaction to have to something as devastating as the housing crisis but anger eventually burns out and it burns you out and I think whether that's in your personal life or professional life it's it's ultimately limited and limiting and I think politically anger also only gets you so far because it doesn't necessarily win people over it doesn't necessarily get the right policies put in place And I wanted to make the point here that there are solutions. Nothing is inevitable. Nothing is inevitable. What we're living through right now as you and I speak with consumer price inflation, the rising cost of essentials is not inevitable. That's a political choice. I'm not an economist. There are good reasons why some people think inflation is the answer. Um, And there are there are some reasons why other people think that the government should be pumping more money, money into the economy and helping people out. And I think that's also something I wanted to draw out here, which is there are de- different ways of solving the housing crisis and there are different ideologies at play on the left and the right. But ultimately, what I know and what I see every day in my work speaking to people is that even in the most terrible circumstances, people want change. People have hope people are optimistic i think human beings are ultimately hopeful and optimistic even when things are really really terrible and everybody who let me into their lives and shared a story for tenants over several years you know i've got to know these people really well some of them i I feel incredibly close to although i obviously have to maintain that kind of journalistic distance they'll send me messages like i just i just want people to know my story because i want things to change or you know, even even when I feel really, really shit, I I'm hopeful that telling my story is going to is going to make something better for someone else. And there are also people in power who are really hopeful and optimistic and always looking for solutions. And so I suppose the optimism that I wanted to get across is not like a Pollyanna-ish sense of everything's fine. 
and I would I don't I don't want anyone to misunderstand me and say that I don't think you should be angry about this I think you should be really fucking angry about what's happened to the housing market um and what and what, what that means for human beings but I wouldn't want anyone to come away feeling hopeless like there isn't anything that can be done and this is something that um you know someone like Rebecca Solnit has written on so well in in Hope in the Dark which uh was was republished um when Trump was elected I think hope isn't necessarily blind blind optimism and it's not uh it's not the naive sense that everything's just going to be okay like you have to work to make things okay and you have to make your voice heard and you have to advocate for what you think is right but i also think you know being defeatist is is not the answer either and with something as as fundamental as housing there's always a way forward and it's just finding out what the what the blocks are and where they are but i think if enough people got a sense of what the potential solutions to the housing crisis are and i've laid some of them out towards the end of the book and even did something as basic as wrote to their MP. I actually, I do, I do think it would make a difference. You know, I've been in MPs' offices. I know that they do, they do read what comes in. Maybe not all of it, but but they do. You know, their staff read it and they read a selection of it. And I think, I think anything is possible. And I know that because, as you know, the history of housing in this country and indeed of other issues shows. We once didn't have an NHS. Now we do. We once didn't have any social housing. Now, albeit not enough, we do. And in the 20th century, we built absolutely loads of it. So anything can happen and, and change is possible. You know, once women didn't have the vote, now we do. That was controversial. And I think if enough people can be informed about an issue and start looking into the potential solutions, public opinion moves, and what do politicians ultimately want? They want to win elections and they want to be on the right side of public opinion. So I think if enough people said, hey, we need rent control again, if, if that's what you think the solution to this is, then wouldn't be completely impossible that we would see rent controls introduced. And again, I know that because of letting fees, right? Like when we started talking about that, that was something housing charities have been doing for a really long time, um, like Shelter and the lobby group Generation Rent, which I'm now on the board of, but wasn't at that time. They'd been calling for a ban on letting fees for years. And politicians were like, no, it's too radical, too radical. We'll never do that. Like that would really like upset, upset all the estate agents and be terrible for the economy and sky would fall in and everything would be a disaster. And then I think what was so powerful about Make Renting Fair Lots and lots of people signed a petition, made their voices heard, hundreds of thousands in the end. Like it was a huge, huge petition. And I was able to talk about that and show people that petition in Westminster and go on TV and be like, well, thousands of people don't want these fees anymore. And the government listened because they could see that that's what people wanted. And I do think sometimes it's that simple. We like to think that it's more complex than that. It's, it's not. Um, I think if enough people can get behind something, anything's possible. And we saw that, you know, also with free school meals and, and the incredible work that Mark, Marcus Rashford did there. Don't underestimate the power of public opinion. So that's where my optimism comes from, I suppose, is like, be angry, but also look at history and, and remember that change does come from, from people. Thank you. I was worried I was going to read this book, get to the end and just feel really flat because it, there is a short circuit that goes in your brain sometimes when you're so overwhelmed with that hopelessness and that 
anger and that guilt, major guilt, if you're not actually suffering in the housing crisis, then you're someone that has to really try and do something. And I feel like without that hope, without that sort of bit of empowerment that you can do something, sometimes, yeah, people give up and they lose hope. So I I think it is important, I think, that people feel like they can do something because then what? (laughs) Then what do we do? Because there were days where... I was reading the news and it was like the cladding scandals going on where there was literally pictures of people with like bars in front of their faces, like pregnant women who were needing literally like another bedroom for like a third child. And there were, you know, um, there was some, there's a young man on Twitter that does some great work where he goes into people's houses and films things. Hey, Joe Tonaboa. Um, yes, that is who. Yeah, and I'll leave a link below to, to him as well. But it was like you know, cockroaches and people living in like terrible conditions that you watch it and you think, how did I not know? How do people not know about this? And actually then you need to know what to do with that information, I feel, which is what you just outlined. So it's very powerful. Well, yeah, and and, and let's not forget, right? Like ultimately we live in a democracy. Everybody has a vote. If you are currently in a comfortable position and you don't like what you're seeing happen to other people and you feel bad about it. You know, and I think I think you touched on something really important there, Emma, which is guilt too. Like guilt is also a really um, limited emotion. Like you feel guilty, you mm. feel bad, you feel ashamed because your life's great and someone else's isn't. And then and then what? What 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 what, do, what can anyone do with that guilt, right? Like, you know, guilt, guilt is not an active emotion, it's one that kind of sits in you you feel bad and then you do something to feel better and you try not to think about it so rather than that I would like to encourage people to remember that they have a vote like you you don't just have to vote one way or another way like all political parties have policies you can look at them and you can vote for the one that you think is gonna gonna make make a difference and help people but I think on housing you know, and this is where my my optimism has to meet realism. We we do have a problem because we're now in such dire straits economically, where work doesn't pay enough um, for most people, and a lot of individuals I know see their home as an investment because they're worried about how they're going to fund their life in retirement, in old age, what they're going to pass on to their kids. Again, all very, very, very reasonable things to be worried about. So it's, it's, it's quite tricky because we're going to have to be in a situation where some policies won't necessarily benefit the majority. So like if we did regulate rents, that would upset landlords. If we did something about house price inflation, that would upset some people who have, um, been banking on their home going up in value so they can make money. And I think that is a, is a tricky conversation to navigate, but again, one I don't think is impossible. And I think, you know, Ed Miliband's new book actually tackles this very well. There's a, there's a short chapter on housing in it. And um, it's about remembering that we're all part of a collective ecosystem and actually raising up standards in social housing, building more social housing will be better for the, for the good of everybody because it will take pressure off private renting Therefore, there will be people who can free up homes there. Potentially, that would then mean that more homes would be available for private sale because landlords would have less demand. Like it's all linked and it's 
complex. And I suppose to use the metaphor of the pandemic, that was a reminder that we're all linked and that we're all equally affected by the same thing. And I think the housing crisis, similarly, it impacts us all. If, if, if I can't afford to buy a house, that means you also are going to be paying more for a house and will struggle to afford the house that you want. Like it's not, it's not an individual issue. We're all, we're all, regardless of what stage we're at in the housing market, we're all affected by it. So um, I suppose that is a really important thing to get across. And, and, and by the same token, we all, we all have the power to do something about it too. But I think guilt is really interesting politically because I think a lot of people do feel guilty sometimes in in private and I, I I think the emotion of guilt like the emotion of anger is quite a limited one it's quite interesting also hearing you talk about feeling philosophical or not feeling philosophical at times because when there's such big problems like this you can't help but sometimes need to find a way to function well everyone and I feel like there's a way of sort of justifying things or getting out of things or feeling emotions where you're not looking it in the eye. And then there are times where you're like, no, we all need to practically do stuff. So that's what's so great about what you were just saying as well. I could talk to you about this book for hours, I have so many more questions I would have asked you. So luckily there is a brilliant book full of this stuff. Thank you for writing it. Thank you for all your work. So many people appreciate you. So thank you. Thank you, Emma, and right back at you. And thank you so much for having me. And um, yeah, it's just, it's great to be able to finally talk about this book after, well, you and I have been talking about it now for years. So I'm glad that other people are going to get to read it. I can't wait to hear what they think. Yeah, me too. Thank you. 